today's episode. Before you read this book, know that this is not your typical book. So I didn't have a forward, right? It says, before you begin, know that this is not your typical book. And it says, in fact, I would be hesitant to call this a personal growth book. It's more of a personal disruption book. This book forces you to rethink aspects of your life that you, have been, that you may have been running on autopilot for years. And I go on to say, this book will disrupt the world, uh, the world you, you live in. And a mind once transformed can never again shrink to its original size. You cannot unsee a powerful new truth that shatters your old paradigm. So depending on your worldview, you will either love this book or hate this book. Hmm. That is by design because we grow through discomfort or insight, never through apathy. Welcome to the Modern Author Podcast. Your host, Eric Custer. Learn something you can finish. Uh, on this episode, we're going to go deep with Vishen Lakiani, the founder and CEO of Mind Valley and the author of two New York Times bestselling book, Buddha and the Badass and the Code of the Extraordinary Mind. And Vishen shares a really powerful insight about the human mind, and he should know. He's been studying the human mind for years, and now as the founder and CEO of one of the world's fastest growing educational enterprises on the world, Mind Valley, the human mind has a desire to complete. And that's where I think Vishen sets us apart, saying, tackle things that you can finish. Go out and learn, and then do something that can demonstrate that learning, whether it's a book, whether it's an audio show, whether it's a course, whether it's a blog post, how can you complete something to show that you've learned? And, and I think Vishen's insights are really powerful. He talks about whenever we're learning something new, whenever we're trying to establish ourselves, how we need to go deep. Go deep in something, ask yourself questions, be curious. And remember, maybe one one hundredth of what you learn ends up in the finished product, but that's the way that we learn. We pay attention to the little things, the details, the curiosity we have. And on this conversation, we go really inside how he thinks about it, how he developed his books, and why they've become breakout successes today. Mind Valley is an incredible community and something that I think really pushes the envelopes on how we can think holistically about education. I'm grateful to have Vishen join us. It is an insider's look here, and you could tell it was fun for him to reveal some of the ways he thinks about developing his book, and, and I think something we can all learn from together. Uh, Vishen will be joining us, and excited for the conversation. Thanks for stopping by, everybody. There he is, the man, the myth, the legend. How are you, sir? I am doing good. Good. Thank you so much for joining us here. This is the part of the community of about 400 authors who are working okay. on their first books. And I think really? they're, they're your hundred authors working on their first book. Exactly. These are your people. These are people who are thinking okay. about like a different approach to learning. And, and our approach together is how do we learn as a community? How do we learn something? And how do we demonstrate what we learn through the process of writing a book? And we've got people all over the world who are in this uh, community. This started as a class at Georgetown and has since evolved into this entire community of people from all over the place, which is, which is great. That's great. A little bit about me for those of you who don't know my background. I wrote two books, uh, The Code of the Extraordinary Mind. It hit the New York Times and it became the number one book in the world. It briefly became for five days in 2017. It was the number one book across all categories in Amazon. My more recent book is The Buddha and the Badass. It hit number one in the Wall Street Journal. And now what I'm doing is, and, and I'm not sharing those numbers to brag or anything. I'm sharing those numbers because there is a method to how you do that. There is a method to getting people to read your book. And I'm delighted to share some of that. And now I get, and I'm happy to go behind, behind the scenes on how you get, how not only do you get your book widely read, but how, and this is the elusive part, 
how to make money as an author. Yeah. So right now, I, if I wanted to, I could make two, three million a year just writing books and working maybe 40 hours a week. And I'm happy to do to answer any questions and take this in any direction you want, Eric, to serve the audience that's here. Yeah. yeah. So I would love you know to start just a little bit here. I think that I've been studying your story a little bit. And I think your journey to think differently and much more holistically is a really interesting one. In, in many ways, as you described, I had it all. I had the dream job. I was doing all the right things here. And you gave it up and become a meditation instructor. Right. And before it was cool. This is not like what it was like. Everyone was thinking about these things. This is 20 years ago almost. Take us through a little bit of how you made this shift. Because I think a lot of people in this experience are trying to make that same shift and trying to get that courage and confidence to do it that, that you did. So maybe share a little bit about how you made that life shift and now you've accelerated for hundreds and thousands of others. Okay, so the important thing is this. If you love what you do, you will never have to work a day in your life. If hmm. you love what you do. And so I was, I lost my business. I was, uh, I was 25 years old. I moved to Silicon Valley, the dot-com bubble burst. It was 2001. I remember April of that year, 14,000 people, including me, were laid off. Wow. It was a really tough time. 14, sorry, 14,000 people were laid off that month. I remember attending pink slip parties because I was going broke. At that point, I couldn't afford rent. I'd crash my car because uh, I couldn't afford to fix my brakes. I was renting a couch from a Berkeley college student. And here... <laughs> was me, a computer engineer with a fancy degree from one of the top engineering schools in the world. Your degrees don't count for anything. So that's a reality we have to accept. Degrees don't matter. And so what happened was I was sending my resume out uh, and eventually I got a big break. It was a job. There was no one hiring, but there was this one company teaching people, uh, sorry, hiring people to pick up a phone and call, call lawyers and sell them on technology. And it was a horrible job because when you interrupt them in the middle of the day, you will hear more fuck off kids than you care to hear. And so there was me, 26 years old at that point, being told to fuck off 12 to 15 times a day. Hmm. And I sank into a depression. I was Googling and I found a class online on meditation and it promised that it could teach me to tap into intuition. It could grow my sales. It was called Silva Ultramind. I flew to LA. I took the class. I was the only person who showed up. Meditation wasn't sexy back then. Yeah. I go back to my work and I realized I've unlocked a new skill, the skill of intuition. I've realized that I'm now able to access, now we know what it is, but back then it was just called intuition or psychic ability. Right. But I was able to access altered states and I was able to intuitively know who to, everyone else would call A to Z on the yellow pages. Back then we used the yellow pages. I could run my hand down the book and get an impulse on who to call. Overnight, I doubled my sales. I went deeper into the study of the human mind, double my sales again, double my sales again. At the age of 26, four months later, I was made director of sales, shipped out to New York to start the company's New York office. I worked at that company for 18 months. And then I got to a stage where work was no longer joyful. And I felt like I was, I was building a business that was against my values. I didn't want to be in the legal industry. Mm -hmm. I didn't care about selling software to lawyers. But what did I care about? I cared about the fact that I was broken and broke, that my college degree had meant nothing, but this meditation class had changed my life. Something bothered me. Why was I the only person in that class? Everyone should be learning right. Silva. So I did a deal with the Silva organization and I launched a website and I became a teacher and I started teaching meditation for five years. I made very little money. I was broke for five years. I was making maybe three grand a month. That was it. 
I had a Wi-Fi. I had to survive on three grand a month. Not easy. But slowly, the pieces started falling in place. And as my vision expanded, I was happy with three grand because I loved what I was doing. It didn't feel like work. But then a second piece came into my picture, bold vision. And I started getting fed up of just training 40 people a month. I wanted to train millions. And in 2008, the seeds that would become Mind Valley started coming together. Today, we are well towards a half a billion dollar valuation and we are about to go public. We train 15 million people, but it all started with being a meditation instructor, learning how to tap into my head so I could make the right decisions. Hmm. Today, I use that faculty of intuition to write books so hmm. I can produce books, speeches, content remarkably fast because I go into an altered state of mind. Now, how I do it is through the establishment of a trigger. This is my trigger. If I was hooked up to an EEG, an electroencephalograph right now, as soon as I join my three fingers together like this, I go into an altered state of mind. My brainwave dips into what is called alpha, left-right brain coherence, high alpha amplitude, and creativity turns on. Mm. And I can deliver talks, content on the fly. I can write a book right now with no writer's block, chapter by chapter. And so anybody can learn to do this. That's what Valley does. Valley is replacing education. Right. Five years from now, no one in the world will need a college degree. Valley can get you better training, better jobs, a better network for under $500 a year. And how we're doing this is by bringing truly relevant education like the Silva Ultramine onto our platform. You can go to mindvalley.com forward slash Ultramine to see that course, or you can sign up and become a Valley member. For under, for under $500, everything is just unlocked for you. And that's what we're doing. I'm on a quest to make college obsolete hmm. because too many Americans take a large amount of college debt. And I love college. By the way, I was accepted into Georgetown. I decided to go to Michigan instead because they had a better engineering program. Better um, football team too. <laughs> yeah, and also, because, and also because I was growing up in Malaysia, I sucked at geography and I had no freaking idea that Michigan goes to my school. <laughs> Minus 40 in the winter. Yeah. I love but it. But anyway, it. I'm obsessed right now with a quest to build a platform where any human being on the planet can get the advantages of an Ivy League college degree, the network, the education, the well-being, the fulfillment, the jobs, any human being on the planet for under $500 a year. College degrees will no longer be necessary by 2025 because of Mind Valley. I love it. I love it. High five. Here, cheers, cheers to that one. So we, one of the things, the reason that I teach and try to support people through the book process is it is one of those incredible ways to learn. I, I often have been told people writing a book was more valuable than getting a college degree from the Ivy League. So talk a little bit about that sort of from your standpoint about your experience of how you create a book. Because again, the books you've right. created here really, I, I mean, I'll tell you, I love this book has, I, I love it. It pushes things. My, one of my favorite things I use all the time you say is rules, right? Like bullshit rules right. and something that has become the thing. How do you see this as a way to help people learn through that process? Okay. So the first thing is this, writing a book is a combination of spirit and logic. Hmm. Now, many great books have been written that were called channeled works. My friend, Neil Donald Walsh, he wrote Conversations with God. It went on to sell 15 million copies. It was wow. in the New York Times for 250 weeks, right? Now, Neil did it literally by, by, by asking a question to what he perceived to be God, getting the response and writing it down. He did it for his own personal journaling. Mm -hmm. And later on, it became a book, but it's a channeled work, okay? That's intuition. 
Neil was homeless before he did that. He literally was homeless, living in a camping site, sleeping in a tent in Ashland, Oregon, before he became the Neil Donald Walsh, the right, best-selling right. American author. Right? That is intuition. Now, there are other ways of writing which are pure cognition or, or logic. When I wrote The Code of the Extraordinary Mind, it was a combination of two. I did close to 200 hours of interviews with incredible individuals around the world. And if you look at my books, they always bring in multiple teachers. Mm -hmm. So I work as an integrator. I, I learn from all of these teachers. I journal. Then I go within and I think and I ponder and I connect the dots. And in the code, all I did was after 200 interviews, I came up with 10 key mental models that if you stack onto a human being, I believe can lead to an extraordinary life. Okay, so it's a combination between research and intuition. Mm -hmm. The problem with the American education system is we completely push aside intuition. We say it's all about data, it's all about logic. So there's a new field coming up right now called, called and it's very, it's very interesting, it's called perceptual diversity. Hmm. And perceptual diversity, uh, a researcher by the name of Bourguignon wrote a paper on it in 1973. And what she found is that 90% of cultures around the world use some form of altered state training to perceive the world. That's perceptual diversity. Right. The Native American shamans use tobacco. People in, in, in the Amazon rainforest whom I've lived with, they use ayahuasca. Mm. People in India and China, they use meditation, mm. contemplation practices. And it's a way of accessing insight, wisdom beyond your physical senses. But as Europe went through the rational era, anything that was religion rightfully was, was th th there was a backlash against religion. But because of this backlash against religion, there was also a backlash against anything that science couldn't explain. Mm. And so intuition, Bullshit. Psychic ability, rubbish. We have to exist in only one state, and that is the waking of data state. Hmm. But great writers don't play that. Great writers activate their perceptual diversity. Hemingway, by the way, drank a lot as he wrote. Right. I've experimented with that. The right whiskey can put you in the right state. My writing huh. is really humorous when I'm drunk. <laughs> and there are other writers like Paramahansa Yogananda, who wrote Autobiography of a Yogi, a classically beautiful book. He spent hours every day in meditation. Yuval Hariri, who wrote Sapiens, yes. and who wrote 21 Ideas for the 21st Century. If you read his most recent book, he meditates for two hours a day. Wow. So a lot of great writers are using a form of perceptual diversity hmm. to, to write, to create. You look at Bill Bryson, who wrote multiple great books on, the, on human anatomy, on, on languages. But one of his books is called A Walk in the Woods. And it talks about him walking the Appalachian Trail. Now, what are you doing when you spend months on end walking through nature? You are, it's a meditative state. You're activating your perceptual diversity. So the key thing here is learn to activate perceptual diversity. Learn to think like a true artist. If you look at my, my, my living room behind me, yep. you will notice it's very warm. It's very meditative. In fact, the couch back there that you see is, is actually my one of my meditation corners. Hmm. That's perceptual diversity. Adopt a meditation practice. So that's one thing. You've got to combine the rational mind with the intuitive mind to truly create great work. Hmm. And then you talked about one of the things that I love about your concept here is that you are so thoughtful about your audience and the people you write the book, but you also have to help people learn. You describe yourself as a teacher. Right. And one of the things that I love that you just shared there is that you believe there's a secret to getting people to be able to 
buy your book and, and not only buy your book, but use it to change their lives. Talk a little bit about right. that and why you believe okay. in the process to it. Okay, so how did The Code of the Extraordinary Mind hit number one on Amazon? Making me briefly, I became the number two author in the entire world. I overtook Hillary Rodham Clinton. This was when her book came out. I overtook uh, Tolkien. I overtook the author of the Harry Potter. What's the name? J.K. Uh, Rowley, yes. Now, how it happened to this, it was a fluke. If you read The Code of the Extraordinary Mind, you will notice I built stickiness into the book. Stickiness means people need to complete the book. Okay, so I brought in psychology of good education. Good educators keep you hooked, just like Game of Thrones keep you hooked. How do you do that? One of the things is, I mentioned there are 10 laws. The human mind has a desire to complete. If you hear there are 10 laws and you read the first chapter and you like it, you got to learn the second law. You have to complete it. It's an open loop. Next, every chapter ends with a question that makes you want to read the next chapter. But the most interesting about the code of the extraordinary mind is the is that, so Amazon Prime, if you're a member of Amazon Prime, they, they have a book service and you get thousands of titles for free, right? Mm -hmm. and, in, and between September and December of 2017, my title was free on Amazon Prime. Mm -hmm. Now, this ordinarily won't make the book number one because there are thousands of free titles. Amazon counts the book as read if you read past 10 pages. Mm -hmm. If you don't read 10 pages, it's, you don't get any score. Mm -hmm. So people would randomly pick my book because it was free on Amazon Prime they would open up to page one and they would go past page 10. Hmm. But if you read the book, if you read the first 10 pages, you'll see why. Here's how the book actually opens. I'm, I'm actually going to grab the yeah. book and, 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 and show you the secret. I have it here. Okay. So I got the quote right over here. So when you start the book, Firstly, I wanted Elon Musk to write the forward. Yeah, Elon Musk did not write the forward. So I said, screw it. Why do we need forwards anyway? And I just got rid of the forward. But what I did was I started with a quote by Elon Musk. Yep. Okay. And then I went on to say, before you read this book, know that this is not your typical book. So I didn't have a forward. It says, before you begin, know that this is not your typical book. And it says, in fact, I would be hesitant to call this a personal growth book. It's more of a personal disruption book. This book forces you to rethink aspects of your life that you, be, that you may have been running on autopilot for years. And I go on to say, this book will disrupt the world, uh, the world you, you live in. And a mind once transformed can never again shrink to its original size. You cannot unsee a powerful new truth that shatters your old paradigm. So depending on your worldview, you will either love this book or hate this book. Hmm. That is by design because we grow through discomfort or insight, never through apathy. Hmm. So I literally said right up front, you're going to hate this book. And many right. people did. Many people did because people who are highly religious will not like this book. People who are hardcore Trump supporters mm -hmm. will not like this book. The book is not political, but the book talks about human unity in right. a way that if you are nationalistic, and I don't judge you for that's your political choice, mm -hmm. this book will offend you. Hmm. But here's the thing writers have to learn. If you're producing great art or a great book, mm -hmm. you have to be, you have to avoid the zone of apathy. Mm. So some people must love your book and some people must hate your book. Mm. Love and hate. You need mm. to bring in both those emotions. Mm. Never lukewarm, never apathy. Interesting. And most people try to avoid the haters by making their work lukewarm. Mm. You do not do that. So right up the front, 
I, I told people, you're gonna, many of you are going to hate this book. And they did. You will see people, or you'll see reviews on Amazon where people hate this book. But it doesn't matter because... Do we lose lost vision for a second here? Oh, there we go. Sorry. I think you might be muted. Still, looks like. There so, we go. so what? So, if you read the first ten pages, you will see that this book is designed to grip you. Okay. Right. It starts with a story of me about to get on stage with the Dalai Lama, downing a shot of whiskey in a bar. So again, I'm creating a contrast there, Dalai Lama and getting drunk. <laughs> so all of these, and people hated that. People are like, how dare you, you talk about getting drunk in a picture, in an article with the Dalai Lama. But again, that's the point. Yeah. You, you, can't, be, you can't be typical. And you know what, Vishen, real quick, I was going to tell you this. So there's a, so there's a researcher who studied TED Talks, and they studied wow. the most successful TED Talks of all time, and they found the only thing in common with the most successful ones is they had something called tension. And tension is basically something that challenges your commonly held beliefs, which is exactly what you're talking about. Exactly. Exactly that. You have to, and we talk about yeah. that as like, find something that makes people uncomfortable in questions. And that's exactly, I'll tell you, I, last night I was rereading your book a little bit here. And to your point here, I was like, I'm just going to read a little bit. I've read it before. 30 pages in, it's like 1230 at night. I was like, God damn it. I've been reading this thing because it's exactly right. And you are incredibly yep. intentional about the whole process behind it. Exactly. Exactly. I'm creating tension everywhere. I, I will zoom into a story about Elon Musk. I'll zoom into a story about Richard Branson. I'll talk about my sex life, mm -hmm. but everything connects. Mm -hmm. And then there are a couple of other things. There are a couple of other things that, that I'm doing. So again, read the first 10 pages and you will learn the great secret on how to make your book sticky. Mm -hmm. If you read the first 10 pages, you're going to have to continue because I've created so many open loops. Now, right. now Netflix writers do this all the time. Mm -hmm. This is why Stranger Things gets you hooked. This is why Game of Thrones or Cobra Kai gets you hooked. Mm -hmm. They create that tension. I love it. And for you, as you have now been going through this process a year, when you write in terms of a book here, what is the, the sort of process that you go through to decide this is worth sharing? Because you can put, you can put out right. podcasts. You can put other, what is worth a book in your mind and what is worth sharing in different ways here? Because there is okay, that question. So, so I start by creating an outline. Okay, so here's the important thing to remember. The average book is 65,000 words. Right. Okay, now let's break that into 10 chapters. 10 chapters, okay? So you think about the topic you wanna, you think about the topic you wanna write about. Let's say it is how to ride a bike, okay? Mm -hmm. How to ride a bike or the art of riding a bike. How could you break that into 10 steps? The first one might be how to choose the best bike for you. The second chapter might be how to configure your bike so it matches your height and your length. The third one might be learning how, learning how to pedal. The fourth one might be overcoming your fear of falling. So you see how it goes? It's that. So now you already have your 10 chapters. Now, typically, it takes someone 10 minutes to do that. We just overthink. Mm -hmm. If you're an expert, you can take anything you're teaching and break it into 10 parts. Right. Now we go to the first part, how to choose a bike. Mm -hmm. Can all of you remember like going to the bicycle store to choose your bike? Well, you might break it down into the types of bikes available, mm -hmm. what bike to buy based on whether it's city cycling or, or countryside cycling, how to choose the right color, what are the accessories that you want to get in the bike? A basket, a bell, whether you want to get a 10-speeder or a 3-speeder, how to make that decision. See, we just came up with the format for the first, right. first
first chapter. So you break it down into 10 chapters and every chapter you break it down into five components. Mm -hmm. Now you put this in a Google doc and you give yourself 30 minutes to do this. Mm -hmm. You will end up with 50 different components. Hmm. Now you start writing, right? You start writing, you sure, yes, you can move things around, but you start writing now 50 different components. So we went all the way to, should I choose a bicycle with a bell right now? Here's the next step. So 10 chapters, 50 different components. Now let's divide that 65,000 words divided by 50. So all you got to do is write 1,300 words on the bell of a bicycle. Mm -hmm. That's easy. That'll take you, that'll take you a day in Mm -hmm. 50 days. Your book is done. You just, you made my life so easy, Vishen. I'm like, this is uh, a, <laughs> you suddenly broken down the world. So how do you, the other question I was going to ask you a little bit is your process of writing a book was, and you talk about it in the book, you right. were told, you were told by Richard Branson and you're, that you've got to write a book well, yeah, here yeah, and, yeah. and yet right. you have this doubt a little bit to do it here. It takes you some time to convince yourself to do it. This imposter syndrome. Right. Now that you know what you know, and you are inspiring people all the time, how do you convince them to overcome that imposter to get this book out there, to get the words out there? What is the advice you give to this group that'll feel that same doubt that maybe not have had Richard Branson say, write right. this damn thing? Right. What I'd say is, firstly, imposter syndrome is a good thing. It prevents people who are frauds from producing stuff that they have no business talking about. So it's not a bad thing. Yeah. But the first thing is, make sure you do your research. Mm-hmm. To make sure that I truly know that I was worthy to write a book, I did 200 interviews. Mm-hmm. 200 interviews. Wow. Each one was an hour, and maybe you run a podcast, maybe you have a good Rolodex, but I literally did 200 interviews mm-hmm. over from 2008 to 2015, 200 mm-hmm. interviews. It took me a long time, then I wrote the book. Now, maybe you already, maybe unlike me, you already have all the answers. Because you've spent four years studying this field. It was your research topic. Great. You've put in the work. But the first thing is, write about something in which you have put in the work. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I love it. That's amazing. And, and for hey, the, now, the, now, I, I want to go a little bit further. So, yeah. so I said, you're writing about 6,500, um, 1,300 words um, a day. Assuming the average word in the English language has five characters, that's 6,500 characters. That's the equivalent of just three Instagram posts a day. You can mm-hmm. write a book in 50 days. If I ask people, could you do three Instagram posts a day? Mm-hmm. Most people will go, yeah, that's not a problem. If you can do three a day for 50 days, that's a book. <laughs> it's amazing. I love that. Here's the other thing, right? It doesn't mean it's going to be a good. So after you do that, the hard part is the polishing. And the polishing is where you, you get feedback from a friend. Your friend must be really open and to tell you what stories or analogies suck and what does not. And that's also where you connect the dots. You connect the dots between different chapters. Hmm. Now, my books are typically 80,000 words, but I'll tell you this, I write 120,000 words and then I toss out 40,000 words. So my so Buddha and the Badass is about 75,000 words, but I wrote 120,000 and I tossed out a large chunk of that. And what's the phrase? Great books are not written, they're rewritten. <laughs> it's right. exactly, exactly right. Exactly. It's a, it's a process. And what does the process go like from you from that first draft? Do you have a set of people that you're trusted, that board of advisors that advise you from where you begin to where you end? Yeah. So what I do is this, okay? When I started interviewing people for the Code of the Extraordinary Mind, I would write an Instagram post or a Facebook post back then it was mostly Facebook, or I would sometimes share the interview with the Mind Valley audience. Many of these were just webcam on Skype, like 2008 webcam. And I remember what the audience found interesting. It'd be a particular thing a teacher would say, and those would become the pieces for the book. 
I remember interviewing uh, Neil Donald Walsh and he mentioned something on the art of forgiveness. Hmm. And people loved it when they heard it. That went into the book. Hmm. Uh, it was literally such a powerful idea. I, I, I found a spot in the book where I felt it fit and I stuck that story in. I remember I interviewed Elon Musk. I asked him, what made you Elon? And he said, I have a high tolerance for pain. Hmm. And that was such an interesting response. Tolerance for, I, I put that in the book. But here's the other thing, right? You don't say, so, so let's talk about that. So I want to teach you something about writing style. You don't mm -hmm. say, I interviewed Elon and I asked him, what made you Elon Musk? And he said, mm -hmm. I have a high tolerance for pain. Mm -hmm. You don't say it like that. Let me show you how I describe that. Okay, so this is something people forget. They get too academic. You got to tell it like a story in a bar if you're on a date and you're trying to entertain and impress your date and make him or her fall in love with you. So let yeah. me find that Elon story. And let me show you how I said it. In 2013, I got to visit SpaceX headquarters in Hawthorne, California, where I met the legendary Elon Musk. Elon is a living icon, a man who's changing the course of human history with innovations from electric cars to solar energy, transportation, and space travel. He's arguably the greatest entrepreneur on the planet today. Mm. Okay, so that's a buildup. I had a simple question to ask Elon. Being in the presence of a living legend made me a little nervous. So my question came out awkwardly. So here I'm bringing in humility, mm -hmm. but I'm putting you there in my nervousness. Right. Elon, you've done some pretty epic things, stuff most people would never even dream about. Yet what makes you Elon Musk? If we could put you in a blender and blend you to distill your essence, what would that essence be? Hmm. Elon laughed at the oddness of my question and the idea of being blended, but then shared the following story. See, I didn't go straight to his response. I mentioned that he laughed at my question mm -hmm. and the oddness of being blended. And he said, when I was just starting out, I walked into Netscape to get a job. I just sat in the lobby holding my resume, waiting quietly for someone to talk to me. No one did. So I waited and waited. Elon mentioned that he had no idea what protocol to follow. He just waited, hoping someone would come and invite him for an interview. But no one spoke to me, he said. So I said, fuck it. I'll just start my own company. <laughs> Now, I don't censor the word fuck it. It's one of the most beautiful words in the English language. So you just put it in there. And I, I go on and say, the world was forever changed that day. Then I go on to describe Elon's journey and what happened. And I say, now here's the part. Elon shared a lot more too. And we'll explore those other nuggets of wisdom in later chapters. What did I just do? Give us the loop. Give us the loop. Give us the loop. So I didn't just say, Elon said, it's my tolerance for pain. I mentioned him laughing. I put you there. I mentioned my nervousness. I mentioned the oddness of my question. I took a while to get to the point, but that while is entertaining. That while puts you there. That while makes you see Elon as a, as a wonderful, authentic human being. Mm -hmm. I didn't censor what he said. He literally said, no one spoke to me. So I just said, fuck it. I'll start my own company. So that's how you tell the story. I love it. You are, this is, I'm like taking notes like crazy here. You, I, I'm working on my own things here and I'm like learning back and forth. You are incredible, incredible things. I want to be super respectful of your time. You've been so gracious with us here. We always do something fun together where we get the chance to take a group photo where, where you get to tell us what you want us to do. So we're going to have everyone turn on their cameras and take a group shot with you. We had a hostage negotiator last week who had us like on the phone. We've had, we had last night, we had someone doing hard. So Tell us what you want us to do, Vishen, to remember this moment that we got to share with you. It's something that you want us to remember, and I'll take a group photo of us so we can share this and remember our time that we had. Okay, 
So I wish I had a hand gesture or something that people could do. <laughs> I know, I know. Oh, yes. This one, the Silva method. Okay, I love let's it. do that. That's a great the one. Silver. All right, I'll take a couple photos here for everyone to remember this one. Uh, the Silva method here. Everyone looked very meditative and uh, this is how you're going to find your flow state for your writing. This is amazing. Vishen, any questions that you're, any sort of send off you want to send to the audience here? We got it. We got a photo here. Any things that you want to charge to this group here before they go out and, and attack and write their books that you think is helpful to them? As, and we're going to be sending you some of their books uh, afterwards. Thank you for this inspiration. Anything that you want to share with the group that you thought helps them as they go forth and create? No, I, I, I hope what I shared so far was useful. Yes. Certainly has been. It certainly has been. And I'm happy, I'm happy to say a little bit more because I see Nate wanted to ask a question. Absolutely. Nate, we'll let you ask your question. Uh, we appreciate it. Nate, go, go for it. Am I going over? Is this okay? No, you're, you're, listen, I, I want to be respectful of your schedule. I asked for half an hour and you've been so gracious. So we'll ask you last couple of questions yeah, here. We uh, go on. We, yeah, we can go on till 6.45. Perfect, that- perfect. Nate, Nate, do you want to ask your question? I think you're muted, Nate. You're gonna have to unmute yourself. Oh, there we okay, go. There we go. There we go. Vishen, I, I watched your TED talk in which you told the, actually, no, it was a Mind Valley talk and you told the audience to all come forward because you wanted to do an exercise. So I'm writing a book. It's a book of my songs. I'm a professional musician and I'm tying in the idea of altered states of consciousness and that songwriting itself and playing music is an altered state of consciousness. Mm -hmm. So my question to you is, I heard you say you wanted Elon Musk to write your forward and then you said, screw it, maybe I don't need a forward. But I've been really looking for someone who gets the whole altered states of consciousness to write a forward for my book. Do you think that it makes sense to have someone with like good name recognition in the psychedelic altered state community write a forward for what I'm working on? Or do you think it's unnecessary? And if you do think it's a good idea, would you be open to it? So firstly, um, writing a forward is an indirect endorsement of the book. And because I don't know the content of the book and I don't know you, it would be unfair of me to give an endorsement because it wouldn't be <laughs> To this day, right. if somebody asks me for a testimonial for their book, I tell them, look, I can't. I have to read it first. Right. Because one of the things that, the, that happens in the publishing industry, which I don't approve of, is fake testimonials. Mm-hmm. In my book, every testimonial that's in my book is someone who actually read the manuscript from start to finish. And so I, that's just a principle. But do you need a forward? The answer is actually no. Nobody gives a damn about the forward. <laughs> the only, if you had a forward by someone famous like Obama or Richard Branson, then yeah, it, it helps. And then in your book, right at the bottom on the cover, you would say forward by Richard Branson. But I'm not right. famous. I'm not that famous. A forward from me doesn't matter. Begonia, you have a question here. Why don't you go ahead and ask your question as well? Uh, yes, I thank you, Vishen, for all the work you're doing. I watched a talk about uh, being the great place to work in your company, which I wish I will work in some place like that someday. But... Um, right. I think all you do is very creative, but there is a cost to bringing all that creativity. And I, I want to change the world, the work culture, offices in general, with more creativity for innovation. But I, I need to sell it, and they are all numbers people. So, do you have the numbers of how much you invest and how much you get in return? Is there a metric on this? In terms, in terms of, for example, now. Yeah. And with the crisis, have you had to do this? Have you done it? Or are you taking the, the bite? Actually, there, there is a lot of research on it. If you read my second book, The Buddha and the Badass, there's a chapter on work culture. And I bring in a lot of research there. It's all in that book. Thank you. Thank you. I'll read that one. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for hanging out. We really appreciate it again.